Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Morrissey Movement. The purpose of this podcast is to discuss and share one aspect of fitness and one aspect of medicine. Being a general surgeon and a garage gym athlete, I have a strong passion for both of these aspects of life. So sit back and enjoy the show. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. I am in no way forming a patient-doctor relationship. While the aspects discussed in this podcast are medically accurate, you should always discuss with your doctor any questions that you may have about the content. You should always discuss with your doctor before starting any new exercise or dietary changes. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Dr. Chris Morrissey back with another episode of the Morrissey Movement. Hope everybody had a great and a safe new year. Um, Today's January 1st as of recording this, so the new year of 2022 has launched, and so hopefully it'll be a better year than it was last year. Um, So today, I felt this was kind of appropriate time to discuss this. So today's episode six, it's called Appendix and All or Nothing. So I'm going to discuss the history of an appendix and also what happens when you get your appendix removed and then proceed into the all or none mentality when it comes to diet and exercise because this is the time of year when people join gyms with high hopes and then things can get derailed very quickly. So I'm hoping that we can shed some light and kind of maybe change your mindset a little bit about what it's like to do training as well as diet and hopefully you can get and obtain your goals this coming year. So I'm going to start off with the medical portion today. So I'm going to start off with the appendix. So the appendix is located down on the right side of your colon, which is kind of close to your right hip bone. Um, The appendix averages about three three and a half inches long in length, but it can be anywhere from two to 12 inches. It just kind of depends on the person, the diameter or the how, how big a cross it is, is approximately about a quarter of an inch or so. Um, and uh, so anything over about Oh, half a, half an inch is kind of considered thickened or inflamed when we look at taking the appendix out. The longest, longest appendix has ever been removed was approximately 10 inches long. This is per the internet, so nothing is ever false on the internet, as we all know. Um, so again, it's usually located in the right lower quadrant um, of the abdomen, which again is near kind of the right hip bone area. The base of the appendix is located about two centimeters or almost an inch beneath what's called the ileocecal valve. So the ileocecal valve is what dumps where the small intestine connects to the large intestine or the small bowel connects to the colon. Um, So its position within the abdomen can be kind of variable. Um, It can be located kind of pointing down into the pelvis. It can be pointing over towards the left side. It can actually be behind the colon, which is called retrocecal. So sometimes it makes it difficult to find the appendix, especially in the old-fashioned way that we used to take appendixes out. Nowadays, when we have CT scans and the laparoscope, we can usually find it. Sometimes it does take a while, however. Um, So the appendix is actually connected to what's called the mesentery in the lower region of of the ilium. So your small intestine is broken down into three parts. So the first part is what's called the duodenum or duodenum, which comes right off the stomach. And then there's the jejunum and the ileum. So it's roughly 30 some feet of small intestine and then connects to your colon. Um, There's a little blood vessel called the appendiceal artery that is located inside this little kind of fatty layer where all the blood supply um, is located for the small bowel and the colon. So what is this thing? 
it's kind of been identified as a few different things. Um, there is some literature that supports that it being part of your mucosal immune function, particularly what's called B-cell mediated immune responses. So you have kind of two main types of cellular immune responses. There's T-cell and B-cell, and that's way above the um, scope of this discussion. So, um, so it helps in the proper movement and removal of waste matter in the digestive system. It contains lymphatic vessels that can regulate pathogens or microbes. And lastly, it might even produce some early defenses uh, to prevent more serious diseases. Additionally, it is thought that um, this may provide more immune defenses from invading pathogens and getting into the lymphatic system uh, to fight viruses and bacteria. Um, but it's still kind of up in the air whether this is all really happens or not. Uh, some research also shows a positive correlation between the existence of appendix and concentration of cecal lymphoid tissue, which supports that not only does the appendix evolve as a complex with the cecum, but also as major immune benefits. So the appendix does have a few functions. Um, and uh, some people believe it's called a vestigial organ, which means that it's kind of has no function today, but it's evolved over millions of years of evolution. But, you know, some people don't really believe in that either. So um, looking at history, back in 1735, Dr. Claudius Amiand, M I'm sorry, A-M-Y-A-N-D, performed the world's first successful appendectomy at St. George's Hospital in London. Uh, per history, the patient was an 11-year-old boy whose appendix had become perforated by a pin that he had swallowed. The first successful operation to treat acute appendicitis was performed soon after in 19, I'm sorry, in 1759 in Bordeaux. So general anesthesia wasn't available until the mid-1840s, and so some of these operations basically kind of... Uh, was what they call hold still anesthesia, where people will hold the patient down and um, will perform the procedure in an open fashion, which is, uh, you know, undoubtedly super painful. Um, surgical treatment for appendicitis began during the 1880s, although doctors struggled to decide who should undergo the knife, some patients would recover on their own without surgery. Surgical technique and anesthesia has significantly improved outcomes to such an extent that the surgery would rapidly become the gold standard approach. By the end of the 20th century, laparoscopic surgery replaced open surgery in most cases, and I'll get into that here in a little bit. And laparoscopic appendectomy is now considered one of the safest, lowest complication surgical procedures that we perform today, according to one source. Despite the excellent track record, many questions about the appendix still persist. The cause of appendicitis is not 100% understood, um, and we do not understand why the appendix will rupture in some people and recover in others. Um, in 2007, researchers finally offer a compelling case for the function of the appendix. The tiny organ appears to play a role in both Again, digestive and immune function by acting as a storehouse for viable bacteria, which are enlisted when the GI tract loses its benefit, um, sorry, beneficial gut flora. Um, so that's a little bit of the history. Now, as far as typical presentation of people uh, that come into the emergency room, most most commonly, once in a great while, they'll show up in a primary care's office with right lower quadrant pain or just generalized abdominal pain. Um, so typically, if you read the textbooks, you'll begin having a dull kind of vague ache around the belly button region, and then it'll eventually migrate down to the right lower quadrant. This is due to how you develop in utero where organs actually they start to 
you start off as a little ball of cells and then things actually stretch out and then different pieces of tissue turn into different organs and they're kind of take their place in the abdomen and your, your uh, intestines actually herniate and come out through your belly button and spin on its axis and actually track back down inside the belly button and then into the abdomen and take you know their place in your um, anatomic uh, location so so yeah typically you know vague abdominal pain around the belly button then goes down the right lower quadrant sometimes you'll have a fever sometimes not sometimes you'll have nausea and vomiting sometimes not sometimes there'll be diarrhea sometimes there isn't um, when they arrive in the emergency room, depending on the age of the patient, if it's a child, we typically try not to use CAT scan since it does um, submit the patient to a lot of radiation. So we try to use an ultrasound first to find the appendix. If the appendix can be found with ultrasound, it is very specific for appendicitis. However, just because you can't find an appendix with an ultrasound doesn't mean that it's not there and then you're not having an issue with appendicitis. Um, most commonly, you'll get a CAT scan of the abdomen and the pelvis looking for uh, inflammation around the colon as well as a thickened or sometimes perforated appendix. Um, typically we order lab work. Sometimes you'll get what's called a C-reactive protein or a CRP which can be elevated in patients that have appendicitis and usually have an elevated white blood cell count as well. Um, kind of how things happen. Most often either a small little piece of food will get stuck inside the appendix opening or a kind of a solid piece of stool. Uh, the appendix is actually a blind ending pouch um, and it empties into the main um, main lumen of the colon. So if something blocks this, what happens is, is it secretes mucus and has a few immune functions like we talked about earlier. Well, if this is blocked, then there's no way for the uh, whatever's inside the appendix the bacteria and the the mucus to get out so what happens is, is it keeps doing its job like it's supposed to and then you start getting bacterial replication and so pretty soon now the appendix begins to swell and then after a certain period of time then the veins become congested because the veins you know the veins take blood away from the appendix and so once the outflow is obstructed then it starts putting pressure on the artery so then once the artery loses you know the inflow to the appendix that's when you get what's called ischemia where you lose blood flow to the organ and then ultimately suffer what's called a perforation or the, the appendix bursts so to speak so um, you know the textbooks will say between presentation of pain and, and perforation or rupture is typically within 48 to 72 hours however in real life I've seen it when people said they started hurting three to four hours ago and they come in with a ruptured appendix and other people states they've been having abdominal pain for five days and they still have early appendicitis with no signs of rupture so it's kind of hard to delineate who is going to um, show up in this fashion so so once you know we get everything figured out with the diagnosis of appendicitis typically we end up going to the operating room and uh, I almost routinely 100% perform my appendectomies laparoscopically. Um, so what what does that mean? So you'll have an IV in your arm, we'll start giving you fluids and IV antibiotics, and then we'll administer anesthesia. You'll get a tube placed in your throat and put on the ventilator, um, and then your abdomen will be paralyzed so I can do my job. So then I'll make a small cut above your belly button, and then put an instrument called a trocar in, which is like a little sheath, and then connect it to a tubing and pump CO2 into the abdomen or carbon dioxide to then expand the space so I have more room to work. And then once this is 
inflated, then I'll place your bed in what's called Trendelenburg position, which is actually kind of put the head down and the feet up. That way it kind of uses gravity to move the intestines out of the pelvis. And then what next to what I typically do is make another cut above the region where your bladder would be kind of above your pubic bone and then put another trocar or a sleeve inside and then another one in the left lower quadrant kind of about part way between the hip bone and the belly button um, and this one's typically a little bit larger of a trocar that way that'll accommodate the stapler so I can staple off the appendix so what happens next is we'll roll you to your left side a little bit and then find the appendix sometimes just sitting there ready to be grasped other times it takes some digging and dissecting to find it once I find it I'll kind of lift it up towards the front of your body and then there's a little thin membrane at the bottom of the appendix where it attaches to the colon and then I'll make a little window with an instrument called a Maryland dissector which kind of looks like uh, I compare needle nose pliers and then um, we use a staple gun put a staple gun right along the base of the appendix snug up against the colon and fire that so there's a little stapler that fires and a little knife that cuts and then take down the artery and then put it in a little bag and pull it out through the hole on the left side and then uh, kind of go back inside and look around maybe irrigate if there's been any spillage control any bleeding if there is bleeding and then release all of the the, the gas that was pumped into your abdomen and then remove the, the three little ports and then all the stitches are under the skin that usually that'll dissolve on their own in a few months and then you'll just wake up with some medical super glue so if it all goes nicely like that then it can be almost an outpatient procedure depending on the time of day this is done um, I usually tell people you're off work a week sometimes it's three days sometimes it's 14 days it just kind of depends but um, now if we get in there and it's so nasty that it's stuck and we can't visualize the structures we need to see sometimes we'll do it in an open fashion but typically once we've started laparoscopically we'll typically do a, mo a low midline laparotomy incision so basically take a knife from underneath the belly button straight down to the above the pubic bone and then we have to put our hands in there and kind of do it the old-fashioned way traditionally old school open appendectomy is kind of a blind procedure so they typically make a cut in the right lower quadrant kind of at an angle and then go through each layer of the abdomen so you go through skin then go through fat then you get to a few layers of muscle and you kind of split the muscles with an instrument and you go in and kind of find the appendix with a little grasper or a clamp and pull it up and then you either tie it off or use a staple gun or whatever you're have at your disposal to remove the appendix so that was the old-fashioned way to do it now there is some literature out there currently that does suggest that you can manage this without a surgery with just IV antibiotics. Um, there's been some studies done in the pediatric population. Um, you know, it's kind of deemed as one of the safer procedures that we can do. So typically, you know, yes, I'm a surgeon, but I would just advocate to take it out because on average you're out of the hospital faster and recovery is quicker. And you know, you never say always, you never say never in medicine, but you should never get appendicitis again if it is removed properly um, and correctly the first time. Once in a great while, the entire appendix isn't removed, which is called a subtotal appendectomy, and you can get what's called stump appendicitis if the a little remnant of the appendix is left behind, but that's super rare. Um, so... Really, that is kind of the, the just of everything. Now, there is a great once in a while where if the appendix is already perforated or ruptured and there actually is an abscess cavity formed, we'll do what's called a CT-guided drainage. So usually send you to interventional radiology and they'll uh, numb up your skin and then place a really skinny drain tube into the abscess cavity and then drain that out. And then there's 
you know, discussion of whether you do what's called an interval appendectomy later on, which means that you come in as an outpatient and they get this removed electively. Um, some people do this, some people don't. It depends on medical comorbidities. It depends on the age of the person. There's a lot of variables that goes into this as well. Um, now there is a small subset of people that can get what's called chronic appendicitis, which is basically just it kind of gets irritated here and there and just kind of has a smoldering kind of intermittent right lower quadrant pain and everything else that's been done, all the other workups, endoscopy and other procedures, you can't ever really find the source. So sometimes we'll go in and take someone's appendix out electively to try to alleviate the right lower quadrant pain. And typically in my practice, more often than not, um, it does take care of that, but that's kind of as a last resort. And only if we can't figure anything else out, sometimes we'll offer that as a procedure as well. So... So that's really kind of the spiel on the appendix part. And now I'm going to kind of shift gears and go into the all or none mentality and spend a little bit of time talking about this, especially this time of year. Um, you know, in January is kind of the most common time for people to either buy a new gym membership or they're going to get in shape or they're going to diet or you buy some sort of whatever the new sexy uh, workout equipment is on Facebook or on Instagram or on TV or on the internet that you see that you'll use for a few months, then it becomes a uh, expensive coat hanger in your room or in your garage or in your home office, wherever you decide to put it. Now, since COVID hit, I feel there's probably more people doing more workouts at home um, instead of going back to the gym. Now, some people I know did kind of build a home gym for a while, but then they went back to the gym as soon as everything was open back again with the pandemic. But there's still a probably a good majority of people that decided they like working out at home better, me included. I'll probably never go back to a gym again because I love working out in my garage. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, so so again, when it comes to working out and with diet and exercise, there's so many people that I see that get into the what's called the all or none mentality. So basically kind of what happens is, is, you know, people will set a goal for themselves that, you know, you have to work out at least an hour or you have to burn this many calories in an exercise session or you have to do, you know, spend a certain amount of time doing each exercise for the week. And then what will happen is, is if you have to cut it short for life or your job or something like that, or, um, you have to skip for whatever reason, then all of a sudden now you think, well, you know, it's only Monday, but my week is wrecked. You know, I'm just going to scrap everything. I'm not going to work out. I'll just restart again next Monday. Um, so, uh, you know, sometimes we'll just do that just by missing one session. Sometimes, you know, if, if you didn't get a lot of sleep, if you had to stay up all night, kind of depending on whatever is going on in your life, uh, that you just kind of scrap it. And it's like, I'm, you know, why, why should I even try? Um, which is the complete opposite of what you should be doing. So if you kind of think about it, this is a silly example, but it's kind of like if you lost a dollar out of your wallet, then you just throw the whole thing away in the, in the trash, regardless of how much money and credit cards are left in there. Or if you get a flat tire, you're like, well, screw it. I'm just going to slash the other three tires because one is wrecked, I might as well wreck the whole thing, which is completely ridiculous. But, um, and then again, the same thing can happen when you're on a diet. Um, you know, if you mess up one day or you don't track your macros correctly, or, you know, if you cheated when today wasn't typically your cheat day, uh, then you're just going to say the heck with it and just start binge eating and whatever you want. You know, if you're doing, trying to do low carb or you're doing keto or you're doing paleo or whatever. Um, so I actually don't like the word diet. I feel diet has a instant negative connotation and detrimental meaning on its own. Um, and which is a kind of a, 
it's a it's a mindset as well. So I typically like saying either food plan or eating lifestyle or something like that because when I hear diet, I usually think, okay, well, you're probably going to be uncomfortable and hate what you're doing, and it's only going to be temporary anyway. So most of the time, you know, people are like, oh, I'm just going to diet for six to eight weeks, lose some weight, but then you go back to the what you're doing, even though you may be feeling better and like how you look, and then you go back to the, exactly what you're doing before, which to me is sort of a waste of time and a uh, kind of irritating to me. But um, so again, with the new year, you know, being January 1st, it brings on a ton of resolutions and again, diet plans and exercise purchases or whatever. Uh, according to one study that I read, about 80% of people who joined a gym usually end up quitting within five months. Um, February is actually a better time to join gyms because compared to January, typically they'll maybe have a little bit of a discount. Plus, there won't be near as many people in the gym. Um, and interestingly, gyms actually only expect about 23% of people who buy their gym memberships to actually be consistent with using them, and they're okay with that. Um, another source that I read quoted that Americans spend approximately $397 million on unused gym memberships per year, um, which is insane to me. And now with the pandemic, um, home workouts are happening more and more all the time. Um, you know, you'll see things like Peloton and The Mirror and Fight Camp and all these other things where you can get motivated and do uh, workouts at home. Um, so a lot of people are taking advantage of those so they can do this at home and not have to worry about, you know, getting COVID at the gym or they don't have to go out and drive to the gym. They can just work out at their own house. So um, we really, and so another thing that kind of goes hand in hand with this is we really need to stop comparing ourselves to people as far as, you know, people in your own community versus people in your uh, that go to your gym versus people that are on the internet, professional athletes, actors and actresses, social media influencers, etc. Um, you know, one of the best things about weight training and fitness is that everybody can be successful, you know, because if you just compare yourself to you, then as long as you do more than you were doing before, you're going to get better and you're going to make improvements and can start feeling better about yourself if that's one of the issues you're having. Most of the exercises and training programs don't really require a lot of skill. <clears throat> now, if you've never weight trained before, I always, you know, recommend either getting with a personal trainer or going with someone and showing that showing you how to properly do pers do lifts and um, programs before you even start doing anything, so you don't get hurt. You know, and the most common thing people want to do is just throw weight on the bar and just start lifting heavy because you know lifting heavy is you know that's how you get big and that's how you you know everybody's looking at you in the gym, but that's actually the wrong mentality. So a little saying I like to say it's it's not the weight that's on the bar, it's how you move the weight on the bar. So basically meaning that you need to be able to lift properly before you start adding weight on. You know, I have a bunch of younger sons and they like to go out going out to our home gym and I don't let them put anything on the bar and make them use a, P, a PVC pipe and they have to show me that they can do a certain lift, say squats, you you know, 10 times with perfect form before I let them even try to use a, you know, a lighter actual bar and then put a little bit of weight on there. But everybody just wants to jump in. Um, you know, and one of the things that people don't really realize is that these athletes and actresses and actors and everybody that's selling these supplements or whatever that they've been actually training for years and years. And, you know, they say, oh, follow my six week program and you'll, you know, look like me, which, you know, yes, marketing, it's a great strategy, but it's very unrealistic for sure. So um, you just have to put in the work and you just have to be patient and it's really difficult to do. So, um, you know, trying to get out of the quick gain mentality and, um, 
looking at it for the long game is what you really need to do. Uh, and we really need to, again, stop thinking about it's all or none. And then, you know, we need to stop thinking about you have to be hardcore or you're not going to make any gains, meaning, you know, you got to do the, you know, the 75 hard where you're working out twice a day and keeping journals and doing all these crazy things. And, you know, one thing I like to say to people is what is the actual best diet and exercise program? You know, I get all kinds of answers when I ask people this. And actually, the correct answer is whatever you are willing to start and to stick with and put in the effort, that is the best diet and exercise plan. Because basically, if you're not doing a whole lot, any diet plan will work. Any exercise program will work. You just have to be willing to put in the work and um, you will most likely see results. You know, you don't have to do two a day workouts. You don't have to redline in every session and laying on the floor, making sweat angels and just dying in every single session because there actually is a body of literature out there now that supports that actually less might be a little bit more, meaning that, you know, if you don't work out to your maximum capacity, you'll actually make more gains because what people forget is the way you make your gains is when you're actually recovering and resting. And most people don't think about that. And so that's something, you know, you see these people that do hardcore CrossFit, day in and day out, you know, that they redline it every day and eventually get burned out and or get injured. And then that's not a sustainable activity. So you have to give your body time to rest. Um, you know, so say you're today's your day to work out and you're just feeling under the weather and not really wanting to, you know, to train. So the first thing I just say is, all right, we'll go just put on your shoes and walk to the gym or, you know, go out to your garage or whatever you're doing. And if you get there more often than not, you'll be like, okay, I'll go ahead and get this done. But, uh, you know, if you're still kind of like, man, I just not really feeling this today. Well, do your warm up. you know, get on the bike and ride for five minutes or do some stretching or do some, you know, box jumps or do some sort of light warm up that you would normally do for your workout. And after that, if you still you're like, ah, you know, I just don't know, do your first set, you know, put a little put less weight on the bar, you know, scale it back, you know, do half the reps, half the sets, you're still something is still better than nothing. Um, you know, maybe it's just go ahead and do a yoga session or do a low intensity you know, get on the exercise bike and do a zone two ride, which I'll talk about heart rate zones in another episode, or, you know, go out for a short run. Um, maybe just do some mobility work. Maybe just, you know, work on your shoulder mobility or your ankles or something like that. So you can always do something. Um, you don't always, again, have to, if you're just not feeling it that day, well, you know, now going back to the all or none mentality, if you do that, you're like, well, crap, you know, my day is wrecked. My week is wrecked. I'm just going to scrap it. I'm not going to work out and I'll start again Monday. So, which again is the worst thing to do. So what you need to do is just, all right, today is just a low intensity training session. I'll hit it harder tomorrow. And, um, most likely it's just a short lived thing. Um, there's kind of a new terminology that, you know, with the garage gym athlete community that I'm a part of, um, we use something called daily over decades mentality, which basically means, you know, that we're going to for the long game, you know, doing little things every day and training for decades instead of just having to go all out all the time, you know, in this short little window. You know, I love this concept and I love the frame of mind. Um, to me, this, again, just means that you put in the work you know, over a period of years, and you'll definitely see gains of where you want to be. Um, you can always improve in somewhere in your life. Um, when I was growing up as a high school athlete, I had a quote taped to my mirror um, in my bathroom, and I looked at it every day. Um, and um, 
it was just kind of the, the fuel to my fire to get me going for the day. So the quote said, if you are the same tomorrow as you were today, you're not any better. So that really resonated with me. I would often think about this throughout my day, you know, how am I going to make myself better? I can learn a new concept. I can learn a new word. I can learn a new lyric from songs because I'm a huge movie quote and song lyric person. You know, I can run just a little bit faster. I can lift five more pounds. I can do two more reps and so on. You can kind of apply this to any aspect of your life, being a better spouse, being a better father or mother, being a better sibling, being a better, you know, coworker at your job. So just kind of keep this in mind and tuck that away. Um, so again, I kind of felt this was like perfect timing to go over these concepts because of the new year. So go get better at something, take it slow, don't go all in. You know, I'm a huge believer in make small changes. So, you know, most research will say that you have to do, you know, the same task or the same change approximately 21 to 28 times. So basically three to four weeks before it becomes a habit. So start small, make small changes, you know, don't decide to, you're going to start doing more cardio, doing more weights, you're going to diet, you're going to drink more water, you're going to quit drinking pop, you're going to do all these things because you'll do it for about a week, maybe two weeks, and then you'll be like, okay, the heck with this and you scrap it and go back to where you were. So pick one thing, do that every day, just change that one little detail, you know, maybe it's drinking you know, two more glasses of water. Maybe it's taking the stairs at work instead of the elevator, you know, parking farther in the parking lot and walking your walking into work a little bit more, um, you know, trying to do 10 push-ups throughout the day. Just make a small change. And then once you get all that going, then you get this in as, as a habit that you're building and then move on to the next one and then the next one and the next one. And before long, your entire lifestyle will be changed. Yes, it's going to take more than two weeks. It's going to take a long time, but you will be better for it in the long run. So, um, so anyway, I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And please, you know, I appreciate everybody that's listening to the podcast. Feel free to give you know, anything up to a five-star review, whichever you think is appropriate. And uh, if you'd like any topics covered on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you and I will respond fairly quickly. The Again, the email is themorrisseymovement at gmail.com. And remember, movement is medicine. Yeah.